Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. I don't think it's an overestimation to say that our ability to respond to climate change, which is now what we're being asked to do. When you look at the droughts and floods and the contaminant issues and, and all, all the rest of it that we're seeing at the moment, it's here, it's now, it's happening now. It's not something that's theoretical. And our ability to adapt to climate change is predicated on our ability to steward water, not only to get ourselves out of the way of it and to deal with the absence of it and to make sure that it's at the right quality, quantity, price, place and time, for us to continue life in any way that we would sort of perceive as normal. It's foundational work at the foundation of society. It's difficult, but it's absolutely doable. And the other thing that's really great is a trillion dollar market. Hi everyone. This summer, the impacts of climate change have really been impossible to ignore. Record heat waves, droughts, and floods have inflicted a terrible toll around the world. And they've made all the more clear the pressing need to transform how we access, use, reuse, and protect ourselves from water. It's the source of life on Earth, and yet our relationship with water clearly needs to change. In this episode, we dive deep into the opportunity for investing in water with Tom Ferguson, and Aaron Rothman. Tom is the founder and managing partner of Burnt Island Ventures, a new venture firm focused on investing in water businesses. Aaron is the founder and CEO of Storm Sensor, a climate tech company focused on helping cities predict and plan for storms and floods. I learned a lot through this conversation and left feeling really grateful for the work being done by Tom, Aaron, and a growing pool of water entrepreneurs. Warning, in case you can't tell, this episode is awash in puns. Sorry for that, but hope you enjoy. Here we go. Tom and Aaron, welcome to Invested in Climate. So glad to have you both here today. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, fantastic. Where do I find you both today? I'm in Polly's Island, South Carolina. And I, as of three months ago, am in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm feeling terribly proud of it. Even though I had a great time in San Francisco, after eight years, we've moved on and it's fun. Amazing. I actually moved to the Bay Area from Brooklyn. So passed you in the air. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, a lot of people going back and forth between those two spots. And yeah. Aaron, I know you are awaiting a thunderstorm, so we'll hope to maybe hear some thunder, but hopefully not to lose you that as the power great. goes out. Yes. Let's dive in. Tom, I'd love to start with you because you've got the big picture on what's happening in the water space. Tell us about Burnt Island Ventures and the investment thesis that's driving your work. I have been in around water since 2010. I was introduced to it through my work with environmental resources management, the last pure sustainability consultancy. But I specialized in 2015 by joining Imagine H2O, ended up with responsibility for running the accelerator there, which is an accelerator purely for water founders. That's where I met Erin. We've been friends and collaborators for some time, eh, Erin? It's been really fun. But really, over time, running that accelerator, we've sort of built it up and we built it out to, you know, three fantastic programs. And by the time 2020 came, what I was seeing was that the caliber of founders in water was fundamentally different in 2020 than it was even in 2018. Really talented people were finding the sector. And I felt that this was the time for at least someone to go and make the argument for having a dedicated specialist early stage fund that was going to be able to write decent sized checks at a good degree of pace and, you know, build up what looks like from the outside, like a normal seed fund where previously people had come in and out and it was very unpredictable who's going to be on people's cap tables, all the rest of it. But then also bring the specialism and the support that comes with somebody that only does one thing. We're like full on hedgehogs just for the water side of things. And, you know, I couldn't think of anybody who was maybe in a better position to at least go and make that argument. I did not think it was a fait accompli from the start. But then I went out, you know, October 2020, first closed February 2021, when we were still very, very small, and then just built it up over time. And we ended up with a kind of a 30 million fund one, which is great. Because it means that we at least have a shot of really going to do what we set out to do, right-sized positions in great companies like Storm Center, in great founders like Erin. And, you know, so far, so good. The bad thing about VC is that the feedback loops are really long. <laughs> so we're happy with where we are at the moment, but we're in it to be as helpful as we possibly can to a, this, you know, phenomenally talented set of founders. So that's really where we're coming from. Great. Well, Aaron, we're very excited to hear your story as well. But first, let's go a little bit deeper with Tom. Tom, why focus on water? From an impact perspective, what's at stake? It's quite easy to be a judge to be over-egging the pudding when you talk about water. <laughs> but I'm not... I mean, we just... We've referred to it... Is that, is that a real expression? <laughs> yes, it is. Oh, it is. Great. Where I'm from, it is possible to over-egg pudding. <laughs> Partially okay. because pudding means something different. <laughs> it's a real phrase talking about something very real. Like we refer to it as the fundamental molecule. You know, what we really think about it is that the water is the fundamental molecule that allows all life on earth, but specifically society to exist in its current forms. And as we go through climate change, or whatever climate change that we baked into our future, I don't think it's an overestimation to say that our ability to respond to climate change, which is now what we're being asked to do. When you look at the droughts and floods and the contaminant issues and, and all the rest of it that we're seeing at the moment, and mercifully is being more highlighted in the media, like what we are being asked to do is to adapt to climate change. It's here, it's now, it's happening now. It's not something that's theoretical. And our ability to adapt to climate change is predicated on our ability to steward water not only to get ourselves out of the way of it and to deal with the absence of it and to make sure that it's at the right quality, quantity, price, place and time for us to continue life in any way that we would sort of perceive 
as normal. It's foundational work at the foundation of society. And so, like, so far, so incredibly important for humankind. But my job is to realize returns for my LPs. And so it then becomes a commercial question. Like, why does this make sense on a commercial basis? Because people look at water and it's like, it's too cheap. It's heavy. It's uh, it's regulated. You know, no one cares. And like, to a certain extent, all of that is true. It's difficult but it's absolutely doable. And the other thing that's really great is a trillion dollar market that is, I mean, people often liken it to energy. Like maybe it's like energy as it is 30 years ago. God knows whether that's like true or not. I wasn't around for energy 30 years ago. But the important observation is that there are a lot of problems to solve. And there's actually a very high willingness and ability to pay for great solutions in water. It allows you to build great unit economics from the outset. And the other thing is that if you're looking at especially service case businesses, you can underwrite to really quite long lifetime values. And so what you get is a really, really great acquisition cost to lifetime value equation that can make a huge amount of sense. And that's even before you get to things that are relatively common in water, like negative networking capital requirements, for example. You can build really, really, really solid businesses here. And it's early for our opportunity. The reason we're here on a commercial basis is that when you look down Hamilton Helmer's seven powers, for example, like what is actually the basis of a competitive edge? When you apply that to a venture fund, not many of them are there. I mean, maybe there's a bit of like cornered resource, but really what you're looking at is brand and having kind of a first mover advantage into really positioning ourselves as hopefully over time, the venture fund. What we hope is that when Erin is considering who she wants on her cap table, Erin and, and the founders like her, who's going to be who she wants, who's number one, what's the one that she wants with dedicated sector expertise, we hope that they're going to choose Burnt Island Ventures. And that's why it's important that we moved now, we may, st- may still be a little bit early. We may still be a little bit early. I don't think we are. But that's why it makes sense from an impact and a, and a commercial perspective. Aaron, let's turn to you and hear your story. Uh, you are the founder and CEO of Storm Sensor. Tell us about the company that you're building and really the problems that you're trying to solve. So I founded Storm Sensor in 2015, and we work with cities across the United States and also agencies to track how water moves through storm, sewer, and coastal systems. And then we map that movement to water weather and climate data. And cities can use that to prioritize retrofits or response. They can respond in advance of or during storm events, particularly looking at flooding and overflows. And they can also adapt. So taking the data and the insights that we provide and using that to efficiently and effectively design and build capital improvements to address the changes that we're seeing as a result of climate change in our water quantity and quality. Help us understand the connection between what you're doing and climate change. And I think this is something that Tom mentioned briefly, but really want to understand if now is a better and more important time to be investing in water businesses and climate is part of the reason for that need in terms of water resilience or new infrastructure or dealing with the climate impacts ranging from droughts to flooding. Help us draw that connection between what you're doing and climate. Certainly. I think a really... Excellent example as far as timing. Uh, When I was first raising money in 2016, I was told that nobody cares about plumbing because that's all we're looking at really. (laughs) And then we had a series of pretty significant hurricanes in 2017. 
And then all the flooding gets into the news. And then we've got drought conditions and everything else. And we have increased urbanization. We have heavier storm events. We have, in some cases, less frequent, in some cases, more frequent storm events, all of which are impacting our infrastructure, which is also aging. So you combine all of that and you start seeing flooding in the news and droughts in the news. And all of a sudden, people care a lot more because we're not talking about some abstract concept of climate change. We're watching it happen. We're seeing it happen to individuals across the country and across the world. And we can demonstrate that what we're doing legitimately has a positive impact in those communities to make those changes, which we have to do because the climate's already changing. We're seeing that. And on one hand, you can do what you can to stop it. On the other hand, you also need to adapt what we're, to what we're dealing with now. And because water is such a huge part of that climate change and of those impacts, I think it's a pretty clear nexus between the two. Tom, what's your take on this? Because you've worked in the water space for over 10 years as well, and you've really been at uh, the higher level of, of supporting many different companies through the Imagine H2O Accelerator Program and now as an investor. How has the water space developed? And you said we're maybe a little bit early, but is there momentum and what's it felt like? I think what's reassuring about where water is at the moment is that people who have been burnt so many times by their predictions are finally seeing what they've been expecting to see for really quite a long time. And I mean that in terms of you know, everything from the ability of early stage companies to come in and get traction at the rate at which they become viable investments for venture capital, the rate at which the change that people have been expecting in terms of, you know, catching up with people spending their private lives on their iPhone and then spending their professional lives, you know, looking at kind of like Lotus Notes or like whatever it is, like this insane legacy equipment and system that is used to manage the water resources, especially kind of in the in the US. And I think what we're seeing, when you think about the determinants of it, is that enough stuff has got bad enough all at the same time for there to be no other choice for but for the water sector to get quite a lot more dynamic. When you look at the levels of federal funding within water, they fell off the cliff, fell off a cliff at the end of the 1970s and never recovered. When you're building, especially large water systems and large kind of centralized infrastructure, what you're underwriting them to usually is about a 40-year useful life. And so essentially, I mean, this is even discounting all the stuff that was bought before, which has really aged out. What you've got, even at the last spike in federal support, is the aging out of federally supported infrastructure within the United States. And that, you know, the really real kind of canary in the coal mine that caught the public imagination was, of course, the Flint crisis. But the Flint is not alone. And then when you overlay it with, frankly, much, much better storytelling and illumination of the issues, for example, Catherine Flowers' work, extraordinary work, Alabama in particular, but basically highlighting the lack of adequate sanitation for the most at-risk populations in the US. And we're talking about the adequate, inadequate access of sanitation for Americans in America in 2022. It's insane. Astounding. It's astounding. It's astounding. And then you sort of like, as you just have the visibility of this, as well as the reawakening of federal support for this, so you have $100 billion that has now been dedicated to water from three acts in particular, the Drinking Wastewater Act of 2021. You have the Infrastructure Act, and then you have the Inflation Reduction Act, which also has the drought stipulations within it. Structurally, financially, and then crucially in terms of talent, with the talent you are built, you have people now building solutions that people are 
ready and willing and able to deploy. There was this trope within water of always blaming utilities for not deploying solutions. And do they deploy solutions fast enough relative to their utility, relative to the utility of those solutions in terms of what they do? No, they don't. They're not subject to the profit motive. They're not surprised at like survive or die. It's let, I just want to stay out of the news and I want to carry on doing what I've been doing for a very long time. There are structural headwinds to the pace of deployment, but better people build better solutions. Right. I really think that actually the lack of pace of deployment of new stuff in water is actually more to do with what was being built and the people who were building it. I mean, no shade, there have been some fantastic entrepreneurs in water for sure, but there is a critical mass now of entrepreneurs who are going to build better products, delivering better value propositions in response to more intense pain points. They're going to deliver them at the right price point, crucially, not only for their clients, but also for their own internal economics, which is going to allow them to build sustainable business. And that was just much, much, much too rare previously. It really is a structural shift that we've seen coming to a critical mass really in the last three to four years. It's exciting. Aaron, the poor state of our nation's water system is something that you've written about. I saw a blog post where you wrote about the bad grades that our infrastructure has gotten. There's a report card created by an independent research agency that actually graded our overall water infrastructure a D and our wastewater infrastructure a D plus. Tell me about those grades and also how the new legislation that Tom mentioned uh, will be helpful to entrepreneurs like you. Well, the good news is that they uh, have an updated report card and our water infrastructure is a C minus in wow. D now. So we've gone up. Thank you. I imagine you deserve the credit there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> totally. It's all Well done, us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the grades are really interesting because what they look at is obviously the overall state of different types of infrastructure in the country. They've recently added stormwater as a component of the infrastructure, which has never been done previously. And we get to really see that the bulk of our historical efforts in managing our infrastructure due in large part to the funding drop-off in the 70s that Tom had mentioned, is that we have basically operated on a run-to-failure model, where we're not proactive. We are not doing everything we can to make sure that everything is operating as perfectly as it can be and that any cracks or breaks or anything else are identified and fixed. We are doing exactly the minimum that has to be done to make it work well enough. And that's reflected in the grades in our infrastructure. And in the more recent report, one of the things that they called out as a significant issue that is limiting our overall improvement as a country is that we don't have the data and we don't have a national database that shows how these systems are functioning, where the issues are, what needs to be done, what needs to be fixed. And what's really fun about some of the work that we're doing and other companies in the water space are doing is we're developing business models and products and solutions that have never been used before in the industry. And to be able to implement, like in our case, we focus on community And again, that prioritize, respond, and adapt within a community, not just looking at the sewer systems, being able to capture that data, manage that data, analyze it, and provide the insights on a community level provides a city or an agency the tools that they need to to be able to actually make the improvements that they need to make, reduce the flooding that they have to deal with on a regular basis. I mean, I think we've had flooding in Boston, New York City, Denver, and then of course what happened in Kentucky in the last couple of weeks. Like it's just been absolutely insane what we're dealing with. So 
the only way that we can really get those grades up is by understanding what's happening and taking the steps and using the funding that's now been made available to address that. It's still not enough funding, but it's far more than we've ever had previously. And it's very exciting to see that these movements are actually taking place. Tell us a bit more about how Storm Sensor works and what's the technical innovation that's making it possible? We do a couple of different things. So on one hand, we develop, we call it Surfer or Stormwater Urban Flood Risk Index which maps flood risk within a community, um, whether it's census tract by census tract or parcel to parcel. Uh, so one, uh, we call them risk management zones. One of them is assigned a score of one and one is assigned a score of 100. And then everything is mapped relative to each other within that community. So that community knows where within their city they have the highest risk areas. We include a series of different factors that look at physical issues like elevation, obviously, proximity to surface water, but we also incorporate impervious services, percent vegetative cover. And then we add in the uh, social vulnerability aspects. So including the CDC's social vulnerability index, as well as income and population density. Obviously, income itself does not predict flood, but as far as building community resiliency, those areas who have lower incomes and have greater social vulnerability when there is a flood, the ability that they have to bounce back and respond and come you know, out stronger is significantly diminished relative to other areas of, the, of that community. So we identify that as a risk factor. So that helps us prioritize. Oftentimes, we'll work with cities to deploy our data networks. So we have our own sensors that monitor temperature and flow. We'll deploy those in uh, areas that are higher risk. Uh, because we have a really clear benefit of getting that data and being able to act on it. We deploy those data networks. We provide real-time and predictive notifications of different flow events, whether it's flooding, INI, or other issues that cities are dealing with. And then we also provide a series of insights that kind of look system-wide to see how that system's actually functioning, where the issues are, the type of storm event, whether it's the intensity or the duration or the frequency of storms that's causing the issues and how that varies across the community. And then ultimately feeding that back into the risk assessment to kind of do real-time validation. And you mentioned that you work primarily with cities. Of course, there's a lot of flood risk in rural areas as well. Does your technology work just as well for less dense uh, rural areas? It does. One of the key things that we just need to make sure, because we're pulling in data in real time, which is a critical component of monitoring flooding and flood risk, is getting ensuring that we have that connectivity. So right now we have uh, LoRa, we'll be implementing cellular, and ultimately a satellite, which will extend those capabilities. But in even the smaller towns, a lot of the communities that we work in are under 10,000 people. When you think about the success that you're aiming for, and if you are successful, What does the future look like? Give us a sense of the scale that you're hoping to achieve and what impact you'll be able to create. In my mind, we have data connected the entire country and understanding where these, what's happening when. So just picture an entire United States lit up, but instead of the city lights, it's basically water. And we're seeing where the issues are, where the risks are, being able to kind of transition our national opportunities and our national needs based on actual data conditions, being able to learn from each other for other communities to be able to work together and share those data insights, because what happens downstream is a result of what's happened upstream. And right now there's no connection between those two. So making that connection. Obviously, our next step then is to move into the EU and North and South America. So we're starting the relationships necessary to do that. All of the data that we're generating can be used for any number of things from obviously infrastructure maintenance and management to um, ultimately insurance risk and risk reduction. And then 
beyond just developed areas, also looking into undeveloped areas. So as they're developing with the data or with the climate conditions that we're experiencing, they're doing so smarter with the information that they need to make excellent decisions regarding their infrastructure and grow beautifully and sustainably. Thanks, Aaron. You know, a question for both of you, since you know you're focused so closely on water and you're already seeing the climate change impacts uh, through things like droughts and floods and extreme weather. Aaron, you mentioned that part of your work is about preventing risks and identifying risks, uh, or at least risk reduction. And I'm really curious as we think about the risks that are for communities around the world and, and risks for a wide range of industry. Tell us about the economic toll that we're already seeing from climate impacts, you know, particularly from your view with the lens of water. Erin, why don't we start with you? Nature recently came out with an article that said that the United States on average is experiencing $32 billion in losses as a result um, every year as a result of uh, flooding or flood impacts. And um, when you scale that out, you look at it as uh, it averages $112 a person in annual loss. Obviously, that varies depending on where that person lives. So I put together what I call the FRCR, the Flood Related Climate Risk Index, that identifies the highest to lowest risk of cities in the United States based on four types of flooding, which is the riverine flooding, heavy rainfall, coastal, and hurricane. And then tying that together, we're able to estimate the average loss impact to a person in a given community across the country. And even in areas that don't have a significant risk, we can still see that there is that risk and there is that cost. So being able to quantify that, tie it to individuals and to those specific communities, understanding that for every dollar of loss, then you see an a between four and seven dollars in return for any adaptation implemented. It's a pretty significant opportunity for cost and life savings if we knew what to do. So to, in order to know what to, what to do, we need to have the data to show us where the issues are and, and what our next steps should be. One of the many reasons we find storm sets are so compelling is that great things happen when you apply percentages to very large numbers, right? So, I mean, this is adjacently related and I will get onto the direct cost issue. But when you're looking at the upgrading or the implementation of a stormwater resilience program in somewhere as big as New Jersey or New York or whatever it might be, you're looking at prices for that work and actually the prices of pretty much all our fees have just gone up by 30 percent you know according to a whole bunch of utility leaders that we've surveyed over the last couple of weeks you're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of interventions and at the moment i don't want to throw too much shade at the great work of the people who advise the um the municipalities that are making these investments but it's not not done on the basis of guesswork there'll be some observations and all the rest of it, but you really do need to have like really quite seriously, like resilient time series data. If you're going to be able to like put the stuff where it needs to be put. So, okay, look, say that they really are actually very, very good at what they're doing. And you've got a price tag of a, of a stormwater upgrade system of $300 million, which is not without outside the realms of possibility. If you are 80% correct about where you're putting this stuff, you're wasting $60 million that could be put into all sorts of other uses. Like it's really quite hard to wrap your head around the opportunity cost of how far behind we are in water in terms of the upgrading of these systems. Like a lot of the stuff that we hear about, especially the flood issue in particular, is that like, yeah, but like, isn't all the money going to go to the people who like pour the concrete or like whatever it is, which is like 
yeah, like, yes, there's going to be a lot of like really hard, basic kind of like thumpy, thumpy infrastructure that's going to get built. That's going to be doing a lot of the attenuation. There is a massive prize in telling them where to put it. When you just look at droughts, for example, so California, the 2021 drought alone, and it's been going on for 20 years, cost the economy $1.6 billion. I think that's probably quite a large underestimation, um, especially if you factor in the sort of downstream ramifications of increased fire risk and, and reduction in tourism, as well as the downstream healthcare issues, not only of the inavailability of water, but the increased contamination of water, because as groundwater and surface water supplies dwindle, what was in there doesn't go away, it gets more concentrated. So whether you're talking about dioxins or pcbs or one two three tcp or arsenic or like whatever it is this is not good um i don't know whether you've seen the the story about the drying up of the great salt lake and the potential arsenic clouds that may be wandering around the okay put a number on that for the economy of the great salt lake but if again if you're just looking at droughts there was an article i read the other day 26 drought events alone in the US since 1980 have cost the economy over $268 billion. This is just the start. Like, <laughs> so you've now got Taiwan Semiconductor, Intel, they're starting to build their fabs here, right? This is great. Really, really, really good. They're going to have to get really, really good at recycling the water from New Mexico and Arizona, which is where they're going to be putting them. And I think actually, the, you know, the people who do this are not dumb, right? They've certainly got like drought resilience plans, but they're going to have to get really, really good at recycling and then getting to ultra pure water on the front because the potential economic cost is the entire output of that fab. We only know the value of water when it disappears. That's as true for people who, when they sort of get out of bed in the morning and they can't turn on their tap. And that's especially true for everyone from Coca-Cola to Coca-Cola to Unilever to P&G to, I mean, got like BHP, right? Bad water management has just like exposed them to a $5 billion lawsuit at the behest of the UK High Court because they couldn't manage one tailings dam. It's astronomical the value at stake. And I mean, I actually did some work when I was at ERM alongside somebody that they'd hired to do work on the value at stake. And when we got to water, it was just like, well, the value at stake is actually total. Like if you don't have water at the right quality, quantity, price, place, and time, but especially quality and quantity, you aren't able to do whatever it is, whatever economically value add activity it is, whether it's making a semiconductor or growing food, if it's not there. I think you've painted a really clear picture for the magnitude of the problem, as well as the far-reaching influence of water across society. Tom, tell us about some of what else gets you excited. Uh, we've been thrilled to hear about Storm Sensor, uh, yeah. but really curious, what are a few other companies? And I know you've got a lot that you've invested in, but maybe give us a few just that paint the picture of uh, the range of water innovations that you see a lot of promise in. There's a tremendous amount of exciting things. I'm always slightly unclear as to whether it's stuff that I just find exciting. And am I actually going to be able to adequately communicate this in a way that other people will find exciting? Or am I just a completely inculcated kind of like water? Get us excited. I think you can Mega do nerd. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of the big ideas I think around water is the power of being able to reuse the same water molecule over and over again in terms of whatever situation you want to find yourself in, whether that is, you know, water within the home or whether that is in water in sort of particular industrial processes. The more that we can use the same water molecule over and over again, the more that we are insulating ourselves from the vagaries of the hydrological cycle at whose mercy we really do not want to be at. Great sentence construction there. 
the power of water reuse as an idea is not to be underestimated. So, you know, for example, you know, Zwitterco sort of massive step forward industrial filtration systems that are going to not only be able to pure like uh, to treat but also recycle the water out of industrial processes including everything from dairy to really hardcore cutting edge biotechnology which frankly wasn't treatable at the moment you had to stick it in a truck and take it down to like specialist um treatment treatment facilities and anybody who's ever tried to truck anything aqueous can tell you how um interesting that is on a unit economic basis and so they've been able to build filtration systems that can not only deal with stuff that wasn't able to be deal, dealt with before they recycle a huge amount of water back into those operations and also those filters don't tend to screw up basically i'm trying to sort of get this into as layman terms as possible but the whole business model of filtration at the moment is I'm going to sell you a system and then every four months you have to come back to me and rebuy the active element of that filtration system, which is basically the membrane. So razor, razor blade model, it worked for Gillette and it works for people who provide lots of these membranes. Anyway, it looks like Switterco's membranes don't actually degrade. And so what you get is a, is a massive advantage on the economic, you know, that's sort of part of the water reuse side of things. One of the things that we've also been thinking about a lot is that the utility people who work in utilities are really the backbone of our society and no one cares. Like no one cares. We don't know anybody who works in utilities. We have no appreciation for how important they are in our lives. And they're having a really, really bad time. The overall economics of utilities is really, really tricky. But their number one concern at the moment is that people who work in utilities are generally old. I think the average age of the water drinking and water treatment plant operators is about 58. And so they really, really are coming up on retirement en masse. And it's just started to happen. So COVID in particular triggered a huge wave of retirements. And so a massive pain point that we're looking at at the moment is how do you keep a water utility functioning excellently when you don't have the people to be able to staff it? How do you support water people who walk in utilities to do more with less? And there are a whole bunch of interventions like within this, um, arguably storm sensor is one of them. And we've invested in a, in a variety of them, Swift complies, utility, Doppler in particular. It just takes all of the information that's coming into a utility from the world. So the stuff, I don't know whether you've ever tried to report anything to your local utility, but it is always, without fail, a total nightmare. And you have no idea what's happening. And you have no idea whether or not someone's going to come and fix the thing. And you have no idea of whether or not someone's tracking it. And you're just endlessly pissed off because it's exactly the same as sitting on a subway platform and you not knowing where the next train is coming. If you know the next train is coming in 13 minutes, it's like, it sucks. I'm going to have to wait, but at least I I know if you have no idea, it drives you completely insane. And that even beget, before you get to the fact that when people are dealing with incoming information, they're sitting there in front of a 2001 Dell PC. And when something's coming in, a kind of a post-it note goes on the wall and they sort of put out a call to John. Actually, it turns out that John's actually not on duty at the moment. He's playing golf with his family and whatever. And then they have to get on the phone to Mary. But Mary's got three other things and she has no idea whether or not which one of these is meant to be the most deserving of attention. Like Doppler just takes all of that end-to-end -end and automates it through the active element of it is an AI system, but it's just a beautifully designed piece of software that once people like bring it on, it just allows them to redirect a huge amount of effort into something that was is much more productive. And then they never leave. Their churn numbers are unbelievably low. And also, <laughs> once they get into the DNA of it, they have 80 customers now serving 200 
cities. And then net revenue retention, which is basically one of the most important indicators of whether or not people value your service, to what degree do they kind of build their position? What degree are they willing to up their willingness to pay? Their net revenue retention still is 213%. It's an extraordinary intervention in, in kind of what is going on. The depth and the breadth of really smart people coming to solve problems in water is definitely the most exciting thing that's out there. And it allows a fund like ours, ours to have a fighting chance of being a kind of a top decile intervention while also, you know, Jason, given the focus of your podcast, while also having a huge amount of impact on people's experience of water in their lives, which as we've talked about is completely fundamental. I'm thrilled that there's so much being done and that there's so much, uh, so much great talent that's moving into this space. But I'm curious, what are some areas where you're not seeing enough effort? Where's there a gap and where does there need to be more entrepreneurial efforts and, and investment in the coming years? That's very true. A lot of what we're seeing, so what we do, we provide the information to make the decisions that you need to make to adapt to these issues and respond to these issues. The next step then is what to do about it. And a lot of the cities that we work with are frustrated because while the technology up to that decision is improving dramatically, the technology afterward is not. So it's still concrete pipes that break. There's lining technologies, there's all kinds, but it's, it's old. There's nothing new. They're looking for newer materials and newer opportunities or things that last longer. Integrating some, like talking about integrating our sensors directly into some of these pipes. But I would say the bulk of the gap that I've seen is in the actual implementation and retrofits of the infrastructure itself, because we're still using pipes and tanks and everything else that we've proven time and time again, especially now, are not the most effective means to, to address these issues. Yeah, no question. It's a weird thing. Everybody always expects um, investors to be sort of thesis driven, that we sort of sit at desks and we sort of create models of the world and then go and find the people who are executing on our grand plan. We actually much prefer, like New Enterprise Associates had this idea of the prepared mind, which is that you need to know enough about an industry to be able to understand a good idea when it comes through. Otherwise, you're not going to be in a sort of an intellectual position to be able to recognize whether it's a good idea or not. We think one of the biggest leading indicators of success of founders is the degree to which their perception of reality in the market is as close to actual reality in the market as possible. And that usually comes from two ways. Firstly, which is the group that Aaron is part of. They are solving the problem that they lived for 10 years and now can't imagine doing anything but solve all of the rubbish that they had to deal with previously, right? They couldn't build a product that no one wanted if they tried because they basically used to be their customer. I mean, that accounts for about 10 of the 16 companies that we've invested in. The other side of it is people who've done a huge amount of work to make sure that their perception of reality is as close to actual reality as possible. It's the gap between those two that always, well, not always, there's other reasons why companies fail, but that's usually the biggest determinant of, of, of where people run into trouble because they assume, and then it turns out that assumption was erroneous. And that, like, that, that way lies the vaporization of large amounts of investor capital. That said, there are some things that meta trends that we don't think are as well developed as they will be quickly. So decentralized treatment, I think is going to be a big one. You're starting to see big leaps forward. There's a great company in San Francisco, actually uh, run by a kind of friend of BIV, Aaron Tartakovsky called Epic Clean Tech, which is going into the basement of large buildings to be able to recycle the water used within those large residential buildings. We think that's going to be a big mega trend 
in Mumbai, actually, all of the major developments, anything of a city block has to be completely independent from the water and wastewater grid. And that's just where buildings are, uh, are going to go. But actually, the, there are two things that I think that there's a huge amount of work to be done on. Firstly, access to capital. There's some really interesting work being done by entities like Generate and Upwell, Upwell in particular, for as you know, specialized within it. But there is an awful lot of money to go into increasingly good solutions, and I don't think it's as free flowing, pardon the pun, as it probably could and should be relative to the size of the opportunity, and I think relative to the IRRs that are on offer. I think it's partially just to do with comfort with the, partially to do with comfort with the sector, but also I think underestimating the caliber of the solutions that are coming in and also maybe having a slightly too defensive risk profile. I know that the cost of capital has suddenly been completely transformed and that fundamentally uh, does problematic things to the, um, particularly the project finance industry in, in, in particular. But I think that there's a lot more work that we can do on access to capital. And then the last thing I would say is there is a lot of really good stuff out there. But there is a difference, especially within water, between the expertise required to create a solution and the expertise required to deploy it. And I think that there are amazing businesses who could just recognize the skills of, for example, you know, plumbing within the home. Like all of the things that you need to achieve the 50-litre home or whatever it is that's kind of out there. But plumbers are pretty good at just doing what they've already done. That's what they want to do. That's what they're good at. That's what they're you know, experienced in. And being able to organize around actually what we're going to do is we're going to be at the cutting edge of everything that allows you to achieve full water security in the home. There's an interesting company called Beagle Services, which are getting to this idea. And I just keep on looking at, you know, whether it's Twitterco or Aquafortis or Clarity or whatever it is, like really recognizing that, wow, there is a big thing here. What I'm going to do is that I am going to go and deploy the hell out of that thing. What I'm going to get really good at is deploying this, which allows everyone to specialize in the thing that they are really good at, whether it's like building uh, building electrochemical reactors or whatever it is, versus being on uh, site with a client. And so it's, you know, it's it's all of this, it's all of the ecosystem work that needs to go on around it to be able to make sure that we're deploying as far and wide as we possibly can. I just think there's, a, there's enough technology out there at the moment that there's a huge prize into getting really, really good at making it a reality. It's funny that you said that as an investor, you meet people that think you have this, uh, this grand plan that you actually don't. <laughs> Such, yeah. But I actually think that you have more of a clear vision that you're giving yourself credit for. And you know, I consider you both deep wells of information on this, pun intended there, uh, yes. just trying to keep up with Tom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Particularly, you both are so close to really what is a fundamental source of life on this planet or any planet as far as current science sees it. Uh, and so you have a unique position understanding of the state of water today and what the future might hold. I had a recent episode that was focused on uh, cities and city infrastructure, and Christian Hernandez Gallardo, managing partner of a venture firm 2150, made the statement that future wars will be fought over water. And it's a sentiment I've heard for years and really underscores how precious and sometimes in some places uh, how limited water is. And so I want to ask you about your vision for water in the future. Will it increasingly be a source of conflict because of its scarcity in some places and at, and at the same time in other places, the source of increasingly catastrophic floods? What is the path that we're headed on and what path could we be on if we were doing everything right? Small question, I know, 
You might not have the master plan, but I do think you have more insight to this and something that we should all be thinking about because it does affect us all. Firstly, very oddly, water has actually historically been much more of a much more of a source of cooperation than it has been conflict historically. Just when you look at the the Colorado River and the scarcity, and I know we overallocated and it's all like a bit of a mess, but we, the the actual kind of degree of cooperation. There's a lot of like tearing hair out and like shouting each other and all the rest of it. But in the end, you tend to get to to cooperation. And actually, even in places that really are not designed to get on with each other, like over the Indus Valley Treaty between Pakistan and India. Uh, it's actually one of the most respected treaties that they've ever drawn up between each other. Long may that continue. Water is definitely a component in a lot of conflicts. The, the obvious one in recent history is was Syria. And I think that like everybody who's close to water is obviously wary of Mad Max syndrome. That's a possibility of where we're going to get to. But actually, the, the history of water would point you in the other direction. And hopefully we can keep it in that side of it rather than on the other side. That said, it is worrying because it's so important. Why wouldn't you be getting towards conflict? I think that the where I fall on this is kind of an attitude of optimism. You kind of have to be, right, if you're going to be a, uh, an investor in early stage water companies. I see no reason why we can't make the people who are betting on the scarcity of water, so people who want to go and buy up water, you know, no, hedge fund traders want to go and buy up water rights in Australia, or they want to go and hold on to the water rights, hoping that it gets more expensive so they can charge people more to drink it, which I just think is a really bad way of using your scarce time on this planet. But like, we are implicitly taking the other side of that trade, is that we hope that they lose tons of money, because actually water rights are going to be really, really, really cheap, because actually what we do is stewarded incredibly carefully. We use as little as we can. That which we do use, we use round and round and round and round in our economies and our houses and our personal lives and you know whatever it is, that we actually get to a steady state through the use of technology. This is a big problem. There is a reasonably good argument as to China is actually poisoned all of its surface and groundwater resources. And through that lens, it actually makes a huge amount of sense why they care so much about Tibet, because it's a giant frozen reservoir that feeds their entire east like it's not without its its strategic issues of course but i think if we keep on seeing what we've seen especially in the last kind of three to four years there are really really smart people who are deciding to spend their time effort money here and what's going to come out of that is the tools that we need to make sure that we don't have a mad max future and it remains say an arena for cooperation. But I'm predisposed to being optimistic at the best of times. Now my livelihood depends on it. Anyway, so, <laughs> so Arian, what do you think? I would also share your optimism because my livelihood also depends on it. And the one thing that I think about when I see all of this news on the droughts and the floods is that the volume of water doesn't change on our planet. It's always the same. The distribution of that water is shifting dramatically. And as climate changes, the disparities that we're going to see are going to continue to increase. And we'll see a lot of climate migration, not just because of heat, but also because of water. And I also think, I have no idea how to do it, but I also think that because that water is there, there are ways that we can share it and distribute it. The planet does it. Humans are smart and we can do great things if we decide to do great things instead of destroy beautiful things. And if we put our collected e efforts into figuring out how we can distribute that water in areas that need it, I think we could, we could do just fine. But 
to do that, again, it still ties back to ensuring that we have the technology and the resources available. We dedicate the resources to find the solutions. So with that, it is an equitable opportunity for everyone. My answer was way shorter than yours, Tom. Yeah, sorry. God, I'm a lo- <laughs> overly loquacious at the best of times. Erin, exactly. I think one of the things that worries me most is that we, we had $50 billion go into climate last year. We've had $21 billion go in in the first half of this year. We're not running enough experiments. Uh, last year, maybe 400, maybe 400 million went into water. This uh, first half of this year, maybe you're looking at 250 million, but a lot of that was taken up by a single deal. Got to run experiments. If people are interested in climate and impact, look no further. We're not doing enough. We're not running enough experiments. But then if you're interested in anywhere, anything in terms of impact, like if you don't get water right, everything else is basically moot. Well, people don't want to run the experiments because they're so high risk, but the risk that we're facing if we don't run them, when we don't try new things is far higher. Yeah. The quantification. And so anybody that even has an even like vague bent towards like, you know what? I want to be doing the highest risk. Well, in fact, some of it isn't even the highest risk, but definitely the highest opportunity. If you're kind of sitting on a large fortune and you want to do something foundational that very, very few people are working on. I mean, you can't see me, but I'm waving. And actually know a lot of other people who will be waving as well. Like there is work that needs to be done. Let's go there and, and just bring it home for listeners. The final question for everyday listeners, we've now gotten a sense of the stakes of what's at stake and also the enormous economic opportunity that investing in water creates. What can everyday listeners do? And Tom, I know that there's a lot of jobs that are listed on your website uh, for the, your portfolio companies. So we will definitely point people to that in the show notes. Aside from working for one of the companies that Tom has invested in, what should folks do? If you want to talk about leverage and you want to talk about high impact, you need to let decision makers know and you need to contribute and architect your political participation in a way that makes sure that these issues that we see in the US and across the world are as unacceptable as they should be. I think it's too simple. And especially within water, where actually the lion's share of water use does go to industrial and agricultural uses, as it should do. We all need food, right? But the idea that individual responsibility is going to actually kind of solve this problem, this really just like everything else, you know, if you want to look for the highest leverage, it happens when when the rules change and when centralized flows of capital that can then also leverage other forms of capital, like change the rules to build the market. Why the hell did solar get all of that support, right? Like water is miles behind the support that the solar industry has got and it should change. And the only way it's going to change is if people are at risk of losing their elected roles if they don't deal with these issues. So put pressure on. Aaron, what do you say? I agree absolutely with Tom that the only way that things are going to change is if individual citizens put pressure on their politicians to make those changes. And also on a smaller scale, and this is nerdy, but whatever. If you have a house and you have land and you can make impervious services, you can build rain gardens, you can capture that rain. It does two things. It reduces flooding because that rain is going straight into the ground instead of running off into the streets and into the pipes and filling those up and then filling up your neighbor's basements. And it also recharges groundwater in areas that you are suffering from droughts. And you can capture it so you can use that rainwater within your system. Because again, the same water, it doesn't go anywhere. You still have to keep it and use it. And you can do that on your properties and you can get your friends and neighbors to do it. And the more people who do that, not only 
are you making a tiny difference, at least in your neighborhood? But you're also increasing awareness locally and then ultimately as you're talking to your politicians on a national and global scale. Well, it also changes your relationship with the problem is that then you are seeing yourself as an active steward, that you have agency. Um, Your political commitment might go up and the people around you as well. But you also feel like you're just not stuck and powerless. You feel like you actually are doing something, uh, which is true. It does. And I live in South Carolina. My neighborhood has a variety of political affiliations that are not necessarily aligned. But it's fun to see everyone else now putting in their rain gardens because they're reducing flooding in their yards. They're able to make a difference. They have more bees because they put in some beautiful native flowers, which means they have more butterflies. And it's just people buy into it as a solution. And also they have ownership of some of those those changes that they're making. And then they're proud of it. And we can talk about it and share it. It's very cool. Listening to you, it's really, it's really helpful because, you know, I obviously have a kind of strident point of view on kind of, you know, individual versus like political responsibility. But I think we're starting from a long way back. People do not care about water. Mm-hmm. They don't. So the first thing that people can do is just be cognizant of it. Like when you're filling up the coffee pot in the morning and you turn the tap on, recognize it as a modern engineering miracle that you are in a ridiculously advantageous position because you don't need to care about it every time you have a shower. And then the next thing you can do is the next time that you get a water bill, open it and look at it (laughs) because nobody does. But yeah, first step is just be cognizant. And be aware of the value that water plays in your life, because a lot of stuff is going to flow from that. Another pun. We got it. The last pun. Thank you for that. (laughs) Tom, Aaron, thank you so much for this engaging. I'm looking for the pun. Thank you so much for this (laughs) fertile fertile conversation. Exactly. It's a bottomless well of wisdom. We're just at the crest of the wave. Look, honestly, (laughs) we could go on for hours. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both. What a great conversation. No, thank you, Jason. It's always a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again. 